Hi, you're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaus, and your Vice President and Director of the Energy Program, and your host for today. This week, we're looking at the recent OPEC meeting, the agreement that came out of it, and what's happened since. With me to discuss the market and geopolitical implications are my colleagues, Frank Verastro, also Senior Vice President and Trustee Fellow here at CSIS, and Ed Chow, Senior Fellow also with the program. Welcome, Frank and Ed. Good to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Frank, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could set the scene for us, um, not just you know before what the actual agreement was, but what was the challenge for OPEC going into this meeting? Yeah, so this is a, an interesting meeting. Um, back in 2016, the world's been working off a global surplus for the last couple of years. And, and so this notion of uh, lower for longer prices would stay low because we had an enormous inventory buildup way beyond the five-year average. And so OPEC in the fall of 2016 had decided that they needed to take control of the market uh, and uh, they implemented a freeze among their producer members, and they brought in non-OPEC members, most notably Russia, um, to agree on limitations on output. Over the course of the last 16 months, they've effectively reduced the inventory to the point where they may have over-tightened the market. So people got concerned about the geopolitical issues that were coming up, uh, Venezuela, Libya, Syria, uh, Nigeria, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, any number of things that could drive prices higher. And just prior to the meeting, um, market sentiment, looking at at the tightening of the market, um, showed that the prices were on an upward trajectory. And as we went into the fall, if demand stayed high and we lost more production, what would prices look like? Which then caused President Trump and China and India, other large consumers, to send out this notice that we really don't want too high prices because that'll uh, limit demand growth and will be bad for the global economy. At which point OPEC took it uh, up to what? how would they revise their freeze implementation, still keep the cooperation that allowed them to uh, put management back in the market and arrive at a place where that they thought they could put additional barrels on the market, most notably from Saudi Arabia and Russia, not blow things up but moderate the price increase. So what came out of this meeting, I think we described in our commentary as being it was uh, artfully constructed and the press conference was ambiguously worded because they really didn't come up with any hard and fast rule. They talked about potentially adding a million barrels a day starting July 1st over some period going probably till the end of the year because that's when the current agreement goes. And they tried to keep – the framework of the old agreement attack and the way they did that was everybody that overcomplied as a group was basically allowed to increase production to meet that level. And, and even at the press conference, uh, they talked about that would provide maybe somewhere between 600,000 to just under a million barrels a day of production with no indication of how they actually were going to get there. The expectation from analysts was that, huh, if that's the case, Saudi Arabia is in the middle of summer burn season where they burn crude oil for cooling, uh, for power generation for cooling. They would add a couple hundred thousand barrels a day to the market. Some would make it to the global market. Some would be used internally. Russia could probably add, and we'll add, we can talk about that, uh, 150,000 barrels a day short term, maybe more longer term. Um, when you look at some of the other members, uh, Kuwait had some spare capacity, but that would almost require that they turn on the production in the neutral zone that they share with Saudi Arabia. So these things would have to roll out over a long period of time. When they left the meeting, 
I think uh, the way we summed it up was having your cake and eating it too because there was uh, success and pats on the back all around. And Sarah, since you were at the OPEC meeting in Vienna, you can tell us kind of what was going on in the room, but I got the sense from Barkindo's comments that they felt pretty good, that they kept the cooperation, but it was only loose cooperation because at the end of the day, the market was positive bullish on the side when you looked at at supply and what would have to be added. And prices have continued to go up, and there's $77, $78 today. So I'm not sure the president got what he wanted. The Iranian piece that we can discuss, the the announcement yesterday, complicates matters further, and we can get to that. But that was kind of the stage set. So they, they kept the agreement together, Agreed to add production. Everybody's waiting to see what actually comes out of this. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I mean, yeah, you're you're exactly right, uh, Frank. I mean, when the mood in Vienna was sort of contrary to what everybody was saying as being very sort of contentious, which I think you and uh, some of our colleagues called early, I think there was an understanding that they were going to have to, you know, do something to signal to the market to put additional supply on, but that they, you know, didn't want to do it in too specific a way because that would be seen as picking a fight and ruining what it was the theme of the whole sort of proceeding two days before the meeting, which was the sort of momentous and historical cooperation that they had been able to achieve, not only within OPEC members, but the OPEC alliance, including Russia and all the other non-OPEC members, in, including a number of overtures to other folks, you know, in the room that are not OPEC members that they, you know, would welcome into the group. And what was interesting to me is, is it, it at the beginning sort of felt like a victory lap, you know, to say, hey, congratulations to us for being able to be in this position. But when um, Saudi Minister Khalid al-Fala came out and said, you know, we we do owe this to each other, right? We owe things to each other in terms of supporting each other within the market and making sure that everybody can, uh, likes the sort of contours of the agreement. But first and foremost, our commitment is to the market and to the consumer. And if we can't show that we can sh- keep you know, oil prices within some sort of stable level, which there was a lot of side conversation about whether the oil market will ever see a degree of stability that is you know, satisfactory to the, to the market or to the U.S. president, um, it was clear that you know, it, this was seen as a point where the, the group needed to be able to show enough coherence and capability to keep a lid on prices, because if they didn't, the real potential loss here was consumer confidence that oil can be a a stable and sort of reliable um, uh, fuel to the market. So, but, you know, Ed, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in particular, because I think lots of people were sort of focused on the traditional um, uh, OPEC dynamics within the, you know, OPEC proper group, but the sort of big outside factor here was the Russians and how and whether they, what was their interests in all of this? You know, certainly oil price matters, but geopolitically, it, it was a harder thing to dissect. So what what are you thinking about uh, these days as you sort of analyze uh, Russia's role in the OPEC alliance dynamic? Uh, yes, we may have to start call, calling it ROPEC instead <laughs> of OPEC. Um, <laughs> Perhaps this is too Russia-centric view of things, but my interpretation of what's happened in the last week or so is that the real conversation, the real meeting took place actually a week earlier uh, than the OPEC uh, meeting, that it was really uh, during uh, not only uh, the energy minister's visit to Moscow, 
uh, the week before, but but also the crown prince's visit uh, 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 around the time of the opening match of the World Cup in Moscow, uh, that the real conversation took place uh, between Russia and, and Saudi Arabia. From my point of view, the original production control agreement was really a, a agreement between Saudi Arabia and, 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 and Russia. Uh, on the Russian part, the promise was to stop increasing production, as they had been doing uh, to a post-Soviet peak. And for, this, uh, for Saudi Arabia and its closest Arab uh, Persian Gulf allies was to actually cut production and to support the price level. And it was an easier agreement to make when the, the price of oil was dropping to as low as $30, below $30. I think it's, it concentrates everyone's minds. Uh, it's a little different situation at $70 oil. And so that conversation took place in Moscow a week before the OPEC meeting. And then what happened to, in Vienna was almost a kabuki theater of, of you know, uh, things, uh, uh, ratifying things that has already been uh, decided. There's even a little interesting byplay of uh, Minister Novak of Russia saying uh, before the OPEC meeting that maybe production should be increased by one and a half million barrels per day, and then to make the Saudi minister look like the reasonable guy who came down from that high number, higher than the market anticipated to, to something that the other OPEC me, uh, members might ac- accept. So I, I, I think this is, this is quite um, decided at a very high level in Russia, first of all. Uh, at, at the level of, of head of state, head of government, and and uh, and the ministers there to implement the policy set at a very high level. I think the other thing that has happened uh, in Russia, some of us were skeptical when the original uh, production control uh, agreement was struck with OPEC, whether Russia would actually come through or not, because we've seen previously at least two other occasions after the collapse of the Soviet Union where Russia promised to cooperate with OPEC and either did nothing to cut production or actually increase production um, in the end. So this time is different. So the question I think uh, in my mind is why is it different this time? Has Russia become um, uh, such a petrol state at this point that um, uh, the oil price has risen to such a high level of importance uh, in the way Russia views uh, its economy, views its role in the world, uh, views its geopolitical uh, requirement to want to punch above its weight if is possible economically in the world, and it's a much higher level or larger game than 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 just um, uh, controlling production and, and oil prices. Um, I think the pressure now would be to, to see what Russian behavior looks like from this point on, how much increase they actually uh, can have. The Russian companies were never in favor of the production uh, cut agreement to begin with because it's actually the Russian central government that benefits from higher um, oil prices because of the way the Russian taxation system works. The oil companies need volume growth in order to recoup the investments they've made in the fields, particularly new fields. And I, I think they would try to produce as much as possible, uh, given that, this, that, that, as Frank said, uh, there, there's an agreement to increase production, but there's not an agreement on who is going to increase how, by how much. And, and so it will be interesting to see how this plays out. 
in the midst of a lot of political uncertainty. Well, and the geopolitics, I think, is really important, too. So not only the marrying up of, of Russia and Saudi Arabia, which traditionally, I think, the for a variety of reasons, there's been a vacuum in the Middle East that Russia moved into with, with not a lot of expense to be a, a big-name player, I think, um, because of the fluctuations on policies between the U.S. administrations. The Saudis saw an opening as well, and I would view a lot of uh, the, the political decisions in the Gulf now as uh, portfolio management, right? So you, you put some of your eggs in the Chinese basket, some in the Russian basket, some in the U.S. basket, and you, you just see where you are relative to every individual issue. You're not always going to be aligned. You're not always going to be opposite. I think the GCC breakup was a, was a point that needed to be addressed, and the issues between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. But I totally agree with you. The way that this has evolved over the last uh, 18 months, but certainly over the last six months, has been a decidedly uh, Saudi-Russia piece with the OPEC secretariat on the sidelines, aware of it, but on the sidelines, because the two big producers, there's three big producers now that produce 10 million barrels a day in the world, the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And putting those two together, and then with the backdrop of Russian sanctions, uh, potentially NOPEC, the way that the United States deals with these countries is going to be an issue. And on the Iran piece, and you saw some of that in Vienna. Yeah. So I, you know, it's uh, it's really interesting because I think that the goal for the meeting was to get out of the meeting and have people feel like the market had been stabilized, right? That they had sort of met this need and that they restored market confidence and uh, you know, maybe the president would tweet a little bit less and all of those sorts of benchmarks. But what was interesting is we've, you know, found this week, one, everybody interpreted who was going to make up that shortfall differently, right, with the Iranians mm-hmm. saying, no, 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 the Venezuelans have 300,000 barrels a day that they're going to be able to bring online sometime soon. Well, you know, it's skeptical. But everybody was able to sort of interpret that outcome the way that they wanted. And that somehow, like, brought, you know, some coherence to the table. So I think, Frank, your point about being artfully constructed is actually a really good one, right? Everybody can walk away feeling like they they were in a good spot. But I mean, maybe that lasted two days. We just have, you know, yesterday a State Department official saying that they're going for maximum pressure when it comes to uh, other countries' imports of Iranian oil. They want it zero. They want nobody to import Iranian uh, oil exports. To me, that seems like a very Trumpian uh, perspective, a a way of going into a deal with a, a maximalist position and see what you get from that. But it wasn't what the market was expecting, right? Everybody had kind of gone into those meetings thinking, well, it'll be something akin to the last time around and maybe even not quite as much. Um, But there seems to be a little bit more surprise as a result of that. And so even more question about if that were in fact the case. Well, I guess the first threshold question is, can the administration get anywhere close to that? And then the second one being if they did, and then you've got this position where Venezuela can't bring on anymore and continues its precipitous decline. Are we, you know, are we in a position where OPEC maybe is going to not be able to put enough back on the market to keep a lid on? And prices? so then the timing is really important, right? So the notion that we had until November fourth for Iranian sanctions to kick in, that allowed the markets to find alternative crude supplies, and we saw Iran increase production in April and May and put more oil on the market because people were buying in advance in advance of the sanctions. The notion that now, no, 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 we want you to comply like immediately and be down to zero by November 4th. And I think a lot of the European countries thought that, well, as long as they made um, gains or strides in the right direction, they would be, be given waivers. And part of this briefing yesterday indicated that uh, no on waivers and, in fact, even condensates 
would now be included. So this is a really tough line, but you're right. This could be a negotiating tactic, and we'll back off because we haven't seen yeah, the big consumers. Regardless, though, we have a very fluid situation yes. with lots of moving parts, lots of uncertainty. While the OPEC meeting was about stabilizing the market, stabilizing the market at a relatively higher oil price from a cartel point of view, from a consumer point of view, everyone would like to see the market stabilize at a lower oil price rather than a higher oil price. But in the meantime, we have a lot of different things going on simultaneously with very uh, lots of possibility of unintended consequences. Well, and we've all talked about this, right? So part of it is the fundamentals of the market, supply, demand, and inventory. But part of it is sentiment and policy. And the sentiment right now is very bullish. <laughs> and you can talk about a number of different supply shortfalls that could happen. Uh, you know, Nigeria is up, down. Libya is up, down from day to day. Venezuela seems to be down, down. So we're, we're kind of on that uh, trajectory. And the impact on Iran is un unknowable at this point, right. it seems to me. Well, and yeah. Iraq. Iraq can bring on additional production, but there's politics and logistics. U.S. is going into the hurricane season for the Gulf of Mexico. Not sure what that looks like. Canada just had uh, supply being taken offline for logistical reasons, and then we've got pipeline constraints. So this is a very different market than what we were looking at six months ago. So the two other things I wanted to bring up uh, is that didn't get nearly as much play or got really flat play within the conversations in Vienna was um, uh, some of the other risks out there, certainly of, of a trade war and the potential impact mm -hmm. it would have on on right. demand. And then the other is, you know, there's this perception that you know the U.S. is constrained in the supply that it can bring on because of infrastructure constraints in the Permian, and that was going to last clear to the end of 2019. You can find yourself in a position where OPEC is in a mentality of needing to assure that it's bringing on you know, supply to the market and then quickly having to turn around if you see a drag on economic growth and then you see additional production maybe not coming straight out of the Permian, but you know, there are other places that could increase production around the U.S. You could maybe, you know, 2019 is actually not that far away. And um, you could have a replay of 2008, 2009. Well, this is the That something bursts to whatever the, 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 the conventional concern. wisdom yeah. of the current conditions are and something drastically and stocks changed. grow again, yeah. Yeah. which they will in the first quarter. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that OPEC was looking at when they were trying to see how do we parlay this cooperation to be meaningful longer term and not have to fight this war again six months from now. And the Iranian peace in Venezuela, I think, have changed some of that. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, speaking of Venezuela and Iran, it would be interesting to roll to Russia place as their production is constrained either because of physical constraints or because of sanctions. Uh, one of the interesting things that has happened with Russian foreign policy lately, uh, including as it relates to oil, is their ability to play both sides of the same battle, so to speak. Uh, but I'm reminded that uh, within a month after the Saudi king's visit to Russia in 2017, Vladimir Putin was in Tehran. So, uh, and they also have, unlike the Chinese, that have lowered their, uh, tried to as much as possible, lower their exposure in Venezuela. Russia seemed to be increasing their exposure in Venezuela. I mean, to the point of actually supplying diluent. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is the other piece, and this is the it's there's a volumetric issue about whether the market gets balanced. Then there's a quality issue about what oil goes to what refineries. And I would think at some point, two other things have to happen. There will be a conversation about the use of strategic stocks, including the yes. SPR. And we actually have a sale coming up in October. So we'll see how that plays out. But the kind of oil that we use in the Middle East or the kind of light oil we have versus the heavy oil in Venezuela, markedly different characteristics. So the same barrel doesn't fit all the way around. But the other piece is what the Russians do with the Iranians as well as the Venezuelans. Very, very, and very, very similar type of crude. Yeah. And there's always produce. been this yeah. notion that if Russia took some Iranian crude and it shows up as a Euro blend coming out of the Black Sea, huh, that's additional supply on the market. It's just not the kind that the U.S. would and want And there to was see. a counter-trade deal on the table Absolutely. between Russia and Iran earlier at 100,000 barrels per day, but that 100,000 barrels per day can, can increase to a different number. Well, and it's certainly hard to believe that the Iranians sort of went to uh, the OPEC meeting asking for assistance, you know, in the face of increasing U.S. sanctions and didn't get anything for that and was willing to be quiet about it. So... Uh, but we're also going to have a, apparently a U.S.-Russia summit coming up soon right. as well. So we'll add another sort of geopolitical iron to the fire. Not that the oil markets aren't interesting enough in and of themselves. Well, um, Frank, Ed, thanks for your insights until the next OPEC meeting, I guess, right? Uh, I'm Sarah Ladislaw with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program, and thanks for listening to Energy 360.